this week on Life and Faith. Harry himself is not particularly interested in immortality. I think that's perhaps worth worth saying, whereas Voldemort, mm. the villain, is. But Harry is preoccupied by death and what it means, and um, he almost becomes a student of death. One of the most intimate places you can be with someone is at the moment of their death. It's the only world in which I live. I don't live in another world. I am autonomous and independent and self-sufficient, and I will get to decide my good. This is Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart, and in today's episode, we're talking Harry Potter, among other things. Now, nearly a quarter of a century after the first book was published, J.K. Rowling's series about The Boy Who Lived has sold more than 500 million copies. It's kind of amazing. It's been around long enough now that kids who grew up on Harry Potter books are now introducing it to their own kids, who also love it. If I was a wizard, I'd probably keep it a secret from everyone. Except I would tell my mummy and daddy. I love Harry Potter a lot. And I know all like the Hogwarts houses. I like the twins because they just like to mess around a bit. George is slightly more sensible than Fred, and I'm a bit more sensible than Sam. Sometimes. You're a wizard, Harry. I'm a wizard, Harry. Go through platform nine three quarters. It's the Hogwarts Express. If I found out I was actually a wizard, my face will probably look like a Same. I think you've got to like leave your home to become a witch. I would think. <laughs> I'd be so happy. That's a video from the Wizarding World YouTube channel of kids' reactions to seeing Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, the film, for the first time. But as many listeners will be able to confirm from their own experience, the huge popularity of Harry Potter has also been about how much adults love these books. One study back in 2012 found that 55% of young adult novels are bought by adults. And many attribute that boom to Harry Potter, the crossover phenomenon, which made it newly acceptable for adults to sit on the bus or the train and read books that were supposedly written for children. My guest today is John Carroll, who's Emeritus Professor of Sociology at La Trobe University in Melbourne, and who wrote in a recent article that J.K. Rowling has been the greatest contributor to the public good in the Western world for the last 20 years. Now, that's a big claim, and maybe not even the biggest claim that he makes in the course of this conversation. I had a PhD student, too, who did a PhD on Harry Potter. She sort of, in a way, started me off, but um, you've only got to read them to yourself, but certainly read them with children to realise the profundity um, that's in these seven volumes. Well, there's plenty of um, children's books that do that right so once your kids get beyond a certain age I've sometimes said to people you need to find some kids you can read these stories to because otherwise you're going to miss them and they're so fabulous there's some brilliant stuff I think that's true but I don't know anything of the I mean this this the age-old stuff of like Enid Blyton but it doesn't that doesn't really have the depth and profundity of Harry Potter I've in a way I think Harry Potter's unique to me I mean you may not like this Tolkien who comes much earlier is just sort of poor man's Harry Potter. It's just, it's just a sort of different order of literary quality. Interesting. Yeah, we could probably have a longer discussion about that. Now, to all you outraged Tolkien fans out there, stay with us 
as John and I dive into some of that depth that he's talking about, what kinds of things the series taps into and why he's such an advocate for it. Equally, don't worry if you're not into Harry Potter either. In this conversation, we get into the West's loss of faith in religion, the lingering hunger for transcendence, and how, according to John Carroll, J.K. Rowling has reintroduced the New Testament to a generation who have lost touch with it. As I say, you won't have to know the books to be interested in this conversation. Certainly the impact of Harry Potter has been seismic. Now, some argue that it's fundamentally changed the landscape of children's book publishing, that the increase in sales of kids' books from about 2004 onwards is due to a kind of Harry Potter effect, and that their appeal made it possible to publish longer works aimed at kids. The last four volumes of the seven-book series are all more than 700 pages long. Now, in response, between 2006 and 2016, the average length of books aimed at this age group increased by 115%. It's amazing. Now, John Carroll thinks this is one of Rowling's greatest contributions, just getting kids reading again. Yeah, I think this is huge. I mean, other people have said this. I mean, her, J.K. Rowling's contribution to, you know, our future well-being is extraordinary. When you think, you know, we're in the age of social media and video and she's got, you know, eight-year-olds to sort of exaggerate them. No, it's not exaggerating the point. Millions of them to read 800-page books with, in difficult prose. I mean, it's not easy kids' prose at all. It's long sentences. It's a very big vocabulary. It's very, very demanding. Um, and so she's, she's instilled in, it's now quite a few generations of kids, a, a deep reading habit. And at the same time, she's sort of populated their imaginations with these extraordinary um, themes and characters. When you put that in the context of the fact that there's now um, it's almost a consensus that if you want to predict um, success in life, um, looking forward from childhood, the best predictor is kids' reading engagement and facility. It largely correlates the number of books in the home, but, but obviously not entirely. And the things that people have generally assumed that your kids are going to do well if they go to a good school or if, or if you're from a, sociologically speaking, from a higher socioeconomic background are really minor. Reading is almost everything. And if you take that into account, just that's J.K. Rowling's contribution highlighted. Yeah, and if it was only that, that would be massive. But can you explain how it happened? What made these books so <laughs> successful? Well, you know, I'm a sociologist and I think ultimately, and the fact that new generations of children are taking to them again and again and again, and we're now, what, 25 years after Harry Potter 1 was first or almost 25 years was Harry Potter 1 was first published. Mm. She's obviously um, engaging with deep needs. She's hitting the sort of nerves of the time in terms of children's interests and engagement. And sociologically speaking, I think that means that it's very important if, you, if you're interested in, in, in what's going on here to try and work out what are, what are the deep themes of the Harry Potter stories you know, what, 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 what in the hell's going on here that's so engaged? I mean, it's now something like 600 million books have sold. You know, it's sort of way 
um, outsells everything apart from maybe the Bible, but it probably outsells the Bible these days. I think it was, I think, John, it was one year that it outsold the Bible. I think okay, it has right. been second to the Bible every other year. But it's in that, it's in that sort of order of, you know, mm. extraordinary, extraordinary impact. And, and the films have done very, very well too and continue to do so. So she's, she can tell us, um, this is my interest as a sociologist, she can tell us about some of the sort of the deep inner needs, worries, anxieties, fascinations, enthusiasms of the time in which we live. One of the things you point out is that there's a, along this line, is that there's a huge focus in these books on death and that they are quite grim stories, actually, about survival and the struggle to prevail. And yet children love these stories. There's lots of ways in which modern life tries to sort of insulate children from the hardships of life. And yet this doesn't and flies really well. Yeah, I think that's, that. well, that's the thing that strikes me most, that very soon into the series, and this becomes larger and larger as the books progress, the central preoccupation is death. I mean, the villain, the villain has flight from death or thief of death scripted into his name in in French and the the books are very dark after the first couple of volumes and that that sort of shows up in the films now this in a really is extraordinary when you think these are books for kids primarily Mm. and children love them I think one of the things that's going on here exactly what you alluded to that there's it's picking up things that are repressed in the culture that are under the surface and that you know, every religion basically centres on finding some explanation for death, um, that death is not just death. Uh, Christianity's central symbol is, is the cross, which is it's a death symbol. It's a death yeah. and possible resurrection. Um, Harry Potter is, is really, I mean, the, the image of the cross is not in Harry Potter, but in effect, this is a long story, huge, of huge length, over seven volumes, that really narrows down onto a preoccupation with um, what does it mean? I mean, Harry himself is not particularly interested in immortality. I think that's perhaps worth worth saying, whereas Voldemort, mm. the villain, is. But Harry is preoccupied by death and what it means, and um, he almost becomes a student of death. I mean, I think it's one of the, towards the end, is, is, is one of the key readings of Harry's character, is some, someone who comes to learn about the... The range, the possibilities, what it does and doesn't mean, and it's mystery. The, the mm. mystery, and of course, he he survives. Do not pity the dead, Harry. Pity the living, and above all, all those who live without love. We don't, as a culture, talk much about death. Don't face it until we have to face it very well, either. But this is partly what might be going on here and that she's picking up things that we as human beings need to wrestle with and yet somehow we kind of try to avoid it. I think that's absolutely true. And a bit in the background there, the, 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 the setting of the story is almost deliberately and nostalgically unmodish. I mean, it's set yes. in a, basically in a Victorian boarding school in which there's mm. you know, academic gowns, there's a high table, there's dormitories, um, it's very deliberately anti-modern or, non, yeah. or non-modern. And I think that's a, a bit of a cue to, if, if, we, if we try and get at the, the subtext, the, the deeper themes in the Harry Potter story, 
of, you know, just how against the grain it is today, sort of how much she's not, um, she's not fashionable. Tolkien was big on this idea that fantasy doesn't shield children from all sorts of things about real life, pain, suffering, loss, evil, the possibility of death. And yet it also kind of holds on to hope. There's a sort of defiance of despair. I think the Harry Potter story does that too, doesn't it? Well, it does. At one level, it's a stock good and evil hero story that the, the, mm. the hero kills the villain and he frees, he, he saves the school, he saves the world, the lights go back on, life can continue, there can be families. Um, so, so at that level, it's certainly sort of optimistic. But I think if you look at him, he himself more carefully, he's a rather solid, at the end, I mean, just forget about the little epilogue, which I think is silly. I don't think it belongs on the end. He's a rather sad, solitary and lonely figure. Um, mm. His two best friends go off and get married and he just wants, he's just exhausted by the end. He just wants to go to sleep. <laughs> yes. Now, is there something in this series and perhaps just others in the same genre that are a sense of a reaction to our disenchanted lives in the West? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And um, that's quite sort of explicit in the Harry Potter books. I mean, the ordinary people you know, everyone knows are called muggles and mu they're mugs. Their lives are boring. Um, <laughs> Harry's um, adopted family or forced adopted family and for the first 11 years of his life is, is terrified by basically the meaninglessness of its own existence. And in a sense, I think what's going on here is a warning to children. Adulthood is at risk of being just like that. Beware. The magic, the enchantment is in danger of going out of life. And yes. one of the things through the story is the, the sort of unremitting focus on death is offset by, of course, the magic, the bright lights, the broomsticks, the centaurs, the wizards who live for hundreds of years. There's the charm of the magic lifts the spirits and is absolutely necessary, I think, to, to compensate for the darkness of the central theme in the story. When I call your name, you will come forth. I shall place the sorting hat on your head and you will be sorted into your houses. Hermione Granger? Oh no, okay, relax. Mental, that one, I'm telling you. Right then. Mm, right. Okay. Gryffindor! John, what do you make of the kind of, I don't know, you think about these things a lot, the apparent materialism of our age? Because on the one hand, we have this sort of hard materialism people often talk about, but they still believe in transcendence, in spirit, in good and evil. Many people say they believe in ghosts or in some form of life beyond this one. It's a strange kind of contradiction, isn't it? Yeah, I think I mean, I'm sort of professionally a sociologist, I suppose. Um, <laughs> I think that's exact. The materialism argument is exaggerated. I mean, that's yeah. actually, if you look at, that's not how people live their lives. They live their lives with hopes for their children. They have dreams of, you know, great future. Um, the proportion of people who are atheists in any serious sense is what about ten percent of the population? It might be yeah. growing a bit, but not. It's not growing a lot. 
There was a study in Britain um, 20 years ago about people's ultimate beliefs, and I think it was something like 70 or 80% said they believed there was something there. There's, mm-hmm. there's something in the beyond. They weren't sure what it was, and the word God's got more and more awkward in our culture, but that doesn't mean that exactly as you say, that there isn't um, a sort of belief in transcendence of some form. Now, one of the great things, of course, that Harry Potter does is that it populates that sort of very vague aspiration. Um, It populates it with very concrete imagery. And we've got resurrection stones, we've got Dumbledore coming back from the dead, we've got you know, Harry's own, he dies and doesn't die, very sort of, I mean, a bit like Jesus at some level, sort of very ambiguous relationship to death in in the Harry Potter story. I think in a way, the pre-modern world, where grinding poverty was the overwhelming reality of, of human existence, sort of digging turnips through long winters in England, in truth, that was a more materialistic existence through necessity, um, yeah, I mean, people probably had more explicit magical beliefs and religious beliefs then than they do today. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. But um, I think you can exaggerate how materialistic the, the current world is. You're listening to Life and Faith, and I'm speaking with John Carroll about the appeal of Harry Potter, why kids, as well as adults, love it so much, and what it's teaching them. Let's hide through that door! That cat's evil. They are not meant to be there. Breaking the rules. Hermione, just saving the day. Well done, Hermione. (laughs) Well done. Hello, Hermora. Name is Fluffy, I think. They look cute! It's a creepy three-headed dog. Yeah. It's adorable. Definitely a good reason to lock the door. That was really creepy. My favourite bit when Harry got sorted into Gryffindor, because now he's with me. I liked when they were playing Quidditch because they were like flying around and there's so much going on. The bit with the giant dog. He's big and he's raw. What happens in Harry Potter? Usually weird things happen. The golden snitch. He catches it in his mouth and he almost throws up. <laughs> Alohomora. In your piece that you wrote recently, you talk about the way Harry Potter reintroduces the New Testament to this generation. In what sense does it do that? Um, Well, this is, again, me mulling over what's going on in this story. Um, I think he he starts as the hero early on, and he has a lot of the attributes of the hero, and he's seen as a hero, sort of death-defying feats up against Voldemort but the more the the books continue the films continue I think the more he turns into a sort of Jesus figure in the sense of Jesus as the suffering servant Mm -hmm. Um, Harry is a sort of saviour he does save the world literally and explicitly but more profoundly um, his role really becomes to serve he's desperate he will do anything to stop people around him being hurt and that includes creatures, not just humans, but also creatures. He's in despair if any of the people he knows are hurt, and particularly when they're killed. And a lot of a lot of the people who are closest to him do get killed in the story. And, I mean, he is very much the Messiah in a sort of self-sacrificing 
sense. That that I mean, Jesus is a very complex persona, but one of the main aspects of the Jesus persona is the suffering servant. Yeah. Saviour comes to save um, individuals, save them from suffering. And Harry, I think, picks up very much that persona. Um, mm. And you could start to say, well, he's a very unlikely-looking Jesus figure. He's so unprepossessing. He's puny, short-sighted. Um, but when, if you think about it, we don't have any descriptions of what Jesus looked like. No, and indeed, it's a very biblical idea that the least likely becomes the hero. Like that could, exactly. That's and, another, and yeah. He probably reflects something of that. And if you compare it to, say, the Marvel stories, they're not like that at all. They're not the suffering servant hero of the story. Mm. They're going to be the heroic kind of muscular figures, aren't they? Yeah, then they're heroes. They're not saviors, yes. those characters. <laughs> the saviour is a different character from the hero. And yeah, that's Harry's and function. Harry's function is it becomes more and more clear. I think as as, it, as the series progresses, he's he's quite happy to sacrifice himself for others, um, which yeah. is not the hero is more the early Harry persona where he fights the baddie, he fights monsters, he he solves riddles and he triumphs and and evil is destroyed. Um, that's that's much more the hero, and then the mm-hmm. the hero rides off into the distance at the end. Um, Harry's far too troubled and solitary um, at the end. I think um, for those who know the stories well, his his sort of alter ego is really Severus Snape, the the teacher whom the students all hate, largely for good reason, but who is um, actually a very the courageous hero behind the scenes um, in the story, which Harry only at the end realizes. Um, but he's Snape's life is sort of a heartbroken ordeal because of the loss of the one person he he ever loved, and he's he's totally on his own, totally solitary and lonely, and and he's but he's and he's also grubby and smelly with with long greasy hair and very sort of. Um, constant sneer on his face is a very unattractive figure on the surface but then again as this is brilliant storytelling under the surface he's quite a different person it's so complex got, it's, storytelling it's, isn't it really it's very complex storytelling it's brilliant i mean it's a, yeah. it's a virtuoso feat i think it, it's hard to overestimate what a great work it is so when the time comes the boy must die yes he must die, and Voldemort himself must do it. That is essential. Can you comment on the notion of calling in Harry Potter? Because that, that itself is a very Christian concept. It's one that plenty of us warm to, this idea that we're called into some purpose in our lives and some meaning. Yes, well, that's absolutely true. Harry's called the Chosen One which is a quite explicit Jesus association. He's the boy who lived, but he's, he is the chosen one. It's like he's called. It's never stated who did the choosing or, or even what he's chosen for, but he's chosen for his role, for whatever he has to do. And when he gets it into his mind that he's going to do something, however reckless and crazy and dangerous it is, whatever his friends say to stop him, he takes no notice. I mean, he is a very driven, a sort of a demonically driven character, to use sort of classical Greek terminology. Mm-hmm. Um, 
he's called. There's no question that Harry's called. But one of the intriguing questions through it, and which makes it very modern, it's not clear what he's called to. Mm. What is his mission? What is his calling? What's his vocation? Hey, she's only interested in you because she thinks you're the chosen one. But I am the chosen one. Okay, sorry. Um, kidding. Do you think the notion of vocation is somewhat lost today? And again, one of the one of the appeals of this, or or are we are we hanging on to that? No, I don't. Um, in fact, I've you know written at length in my in my books on the fact that you know the Protestant notion of vocation is alive and well. Um, mm. That you know it's deep in the culture that you're fortunate if you find work or life activity that completely engages you, that absorbs you. And it is a sort of curse um, not to find a sort of deep engagement in whatever you're called to. And it's usually a form of work, but it doesn't need to be. It can be a way way of life. So, no, I think with the, the, the sort of Christian trappings around the edges, the theology of vocation's gone. But the, the actual concept is deep in the culture and deep in individuals. I mean, if you just look at television or programs that, are, that move people, people are drawn to, doctors and whoever else, they're almost always of people with vocations, lawyers, doctors, detectives, CIA agents, Harry Potter. Yes. And these are the admired figures of the time. They're vocational people. Sportsmen and women are vocational people. Is it? Though, because I, I agree with you, I think it's massively alive because I think it's such an appealing kind of concept. But I wonder if something's, when it's, you know, unmoored from the sense of who might be calling you into something like this, whether there's something lost there. I think that's hard to know. I, um, my sociological self would say looking around, looking at the way people find meaning and the way they live, no, I don't think... <laughs> Um, it's just it's in the it's sort of in the blood, um, the the sense of a sort of inner an, an inner demon or an inner an inner being that directs you and that you know the good life is in part getting in tune with whatever it is inside you that's speaking and that's that's directing. It's I mean, that's exactly one of the things that Harry um, that Harry does. He comes to in a way he sort of comes to learn um, who he is, what his what his mission is by the end. So no, I think strangely enough, the um, the theology that set this going and that created it, which is largely gone for most people, mm. I think it's now. I mean, you may not like this, but I think it's largely superfluous these days. <laughs> well, I'm interested in the impact. I mean, you I read somewhere else where you wrote, and I think you're summarising some of Nietzsche's thought that without belief in a higher order of some kind human life becomes meaningless loses purpose and direction and you called it the ordeal of unbelief is there something there's something to that right that's the modern condition where yes that certainly is true and much of our greatest art for the last hundred years has has wrestled with exactly um, that issue i mean i love the series the sopranos because it's so deeply engaged with the, the central character, the mafia boss, trying to find some sort of higher meaning in his life. And mm-hmm. it, it's symbolised in that story in, in these wild ducks that fly, and I don't know if you know it, fly into his swimming pool. And he's, right. they, then they leave. And he, he has a panic attack, collapses unconscious, a sort of symbolic death when the ducks fly away. And he sort of loses the transcendental, um, to use the language that you've brought in here. 
Um, yes, that's of central importance. Um, Waiting for Godot, you know, probably the most uh, important play of the 20th century. Um, it's all about two tramps desperate to find some meaning and this stranger Godot with God in his name, who they mm -hmm. think may arrive. He probably doesn't exist. But, um, yeah, the challenge for us is perhaps not less, less for you and for many of your listeners as much as they have um, a deep Christian faith, but the challenge for most is precisely to find some sort of way of, of living um, in contact with the transcendent, but without a church in the old sense of the word. And that's Harry Potter's all about that too, I think. It's, that's possible, that's, that's how people live today. This has been Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart, and I've been speaking with John Carroll, Emeritus Professor of Sociology at La Trobe University. If you're a regular listener of Life and Faith, or perhaps if this was your first time and you enjoyed the experience, do hit subscribe. Leave us a rating or review. We want to reach more people and you can help with that. We'll be taking a two-week break before launching into another term of Life and Faith to bring us, if you can believe this, towards the end of the year. We'll be looking forward to being with you in a couple of weeks' time. See you then. <laughs>